You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me as always, he's got money in the banana stand. It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. Hey, everybody. How you doing? What's up? How you doing? You know what, Bill? I'm doing good. I'm doing real good. You know, I was, it's funny. Like I was thinking about like franchises or, or, or groups of films that that we have a special affection for. Mm-hmm. The reason the reason this comes up is my kids had given me some some months back a copy of all of the 1960s and early 1970s era Godzilla films on Blu-ray oh, wow. DVD in this in this really cool like commemorative book. It's put out by Criterion, so they're all beautifully remastered and all that sort of things. And I and I started to think back about how we started to get sort of introduced to that kind of media when we were kids. That sort of media that has a lot of different components to it. Oh yeah, that aren't just a single film. Like, right. do you have do you have your own franchise set like that? That that there's a long history of that because it used to be like serials and stuff like right. that. Like I remember my father used to tell me about going to see Flash Gordon uh, and whatnot. Right. For me though, whenever this is a, that's a question that people bring up to me, um, you know, fairly often. You know, like you know, hey, are you a uh, Friday the Thirteenth or this that, and the other? Because right. you right. know, I'm a big horror movie fan. But right. I think that one franchise that people really really overlook a lot is Psycho. Ooh. You know what? That's true. Yeah, that's that's a good example too, and that's not one that's clearly made to be marketed. Right. You know, Psycho is. Uh, yeah, I mean, Psycho is a masterpiece. Everybody, you know, knows that. I mean, that's that's film right. school one hundred and one. That movie right, right there. Right, right. The sequel came out like twenty two years later. I think it came out in nineteen eighty two. Eighty two. And um, you know, the slasher genre had just kind of come to a head at that point you know halloween came out in 78 and friday the 13th friday the 13th was either 79 80. or 80 yeah. yeah uh so by 82 you know the slasher horror movie genre my bloody valentine happy birthday to me all of those uh, yeah sleepaway camp the, the unseen sleepaway yeah. camp yeah so, terror yeah, train oh, yeah so basically the movie studio was like well let's show these bitches how it's done downtown right. So yeah, they brought back uh, Norman Bates, you know, from the asylum, and he's and, and what uh, Psycho Two is just a great story. It's so well yeah. done, and it really it really owes a lot to the film that sort of spawned the series too. So right. in cra- crafting the script, it seems like they really took a lot of pains to really logically think about how that film and those characters would evolve out of the events in the first film, and they managed to make Norman the Norman Bates character a murderer. Sympathetic, sympathetic yeah. yeah, sympathetic character. Well, that's the thing too with Psycho. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a, a, a like a haunt convention. It was a series of seminars, and this one woman had gotten up to do her lecture, which was on uh, females in the horror genre. 
and she said that you know that females always get the you know the sticky end of the lollipop and all of us are kind of like looking at each other like what are you talking about horror movies are all about girls right it's always a last girl survivor and we brought this up as a question to her and she said i'm more talking about the the antagonist being a woman it's very rarely and again i'm like what are you talking about the right. very first friday the 13th um ultimately norman's actual spoiler alert norman's yeah. actual mother in psycho 2 played by vera miles who was in psycho and that's what i said to her i said what do you think of mother from psycho because even though she technically doesn't exist, she is such a strong character that she actually infiltrates the protagonist right. of the movie. And right. she was like, oh, I never thought of that. I was like, yeah, you never thought of that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, you know, that it's we talk about, you know, Norman becoming a sympathetic character in the sequel that comes out 20 years later. I actually remember the in the Godzilla films that I that I love from when I was a kid where Godzilla does that same turn, not become sympathetic, but does like the wrestling character heel to face turn. Yeah. You know, and it's in uh, a film called Monster Zero, where Godzilla ultimately ends up fighting on the side of the humans against an invading alien army. Um, And it's super duper ridiculous and silly, but still tremendous fun to go back and watch. And these are films I've owned in one way or the other in every format they've ever been released on since they started to come out. And I still find something new in them every time I watch them, as weird as that sounds. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember watching that one over your house with, um, it was like Godzilla and Frankenstein. (laughs) Sort of, yeah. Same studio, but not quite the same film. That was Frankenstein Conquers the World. Yes. So, But uh, yeah, that's a Toho Studios production with a universal license. They had oh. license for a couple of movies with Frankenstein, and they made two of them. Frankenstein Conquers the World, and then they made The War of the Gargantuas, which is a direct sequel. All right. But Godzilla does not appear in those films. All right, that's cool. Let's, uh, right. let's have a podcast. All right, so this is going to be the week beginning September the 14th. I will start. All right. So September the 14th, 1984, MTV holds its first Video Music Awards. Nice. Uh, yeah, oddly well, enough, 1985, those awards show became completely irrelevant. <laughs> who who won the uh, who won the 1984 music video awards? Uh, the, vid- the video of the year that uh, went to Boston's own The Cars. Oh, nice. Yep, for the video, so, uh, you might think. Oh, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That video had all kind of cool special effects in it for the time, and and uh, actually, the know. guys in the cars hated that video. I bet they did. Like when they were presented like, oh, yeah, and then you guys are going to be floating on a bar of soap. And they're like, oh, what's next? We're going to get flushed down the toilet and stuff like that. Yeah. And <laughs> actually, that actually were, happened in the video. Yes. Uh, well, no, they were a little uh, a little more colorful about their description than I was. Uh, Other notables from that MTV Video Music Award. One, it was hosted by, do you remember? No. Bette Midler and Dan Aykroyd. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Um. Other note used to be she used to be super duper controversial. Do you remember like the Divine Miss M? Yes, that was a stage show that was like part burlesque, part Broadway, part musical theater, all kind of crazy music. It was really great, super multi, super like multi talented. And then yeah. she sort of got into movies, and that part of her career sort of died down a bit. I guess Ackroyd was there. Why eighty four? When was Blues Brothers? Was that eighty uh, four? He was probably there because of Ghostbusters. Oh, Ghostbusters, right. That's also where Madonna first took over the world. I mean, her first album was out, but like 
Like a Virgin had it come out yet. She debuted the song. Right. I remember and, that. Yep. Writhing and, around on stage in a yep. like a half a cut up wedding dress and Yeah, she came out, there was a big wedding cake. Yep. You know, she appeared on the stage and she said to the audience, Will you marry me? And then she performed like a virgin and she was kinda like, you know, yeah, rolling around on the stage at the end and it was like, Yeah, that girl just it blew up right after that. That was that was her m- making her a star performance. That one. I remember watching that that video music awards with my my mom and my two brothers with popcorn and and everything again. And yep. that that segment of it in particular. Yeah, I went through puberty right right at that moment. <laughs> just about. Yeah. I had many bruises from trying to consummate my marriage with to her. <laughs> I can nail down puberty to one day, and there it is. <laughs> Boop. Oh. Are you going to watch the MTV Music Awards tonight? I sure am. <laughs> hey, did you see the Video Music Awards last night? <laughs> did you have that beard yesterday? All the, all the pictures that you have in your room from the Transformers cartoon come down. <laughs> and the next day it's all Madonna. Froof, you know. <laughs> you didn't even need any tape to put them up. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember watching it live. Um, I had it on, like, I VHS recorded it. I must have watched it a bunch of times. I just remember even then, you know, being young and naive, thinking to myself, these people are so high. Like everybody was drunk, drunk and high, like really bad. Well, and it's like it was that was like the brand new, super duper popular, incredibly money rich um, organization that had just earlier had just sort of swept the pop culture landscape in the United States and just taken it over like a giant. Oh, yeah. Like 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 an invasion. Right. You know, so yeah, I, I wasn't surprised that there was. I'm sure there were quite a bit of quite a few substances passing through, yeah. being processed by the various organs of everyone in attendance there. Imagine if that had happened with like, not with MTV, but like USA Network, <laughs> and <laughs> and it would be like first USA Network Airwolf Awards, and it was for episodes of Airwolf that were super popular. I was about to say the Law and Order Awards. <laughs> Airwolf. <laughs> And wrestling, yeah. And wrestling. All right, so let's move on to September the 15th. September 15th, 1928. Scottish bacteriologist Alexander Fleming discovers penicillin while he's studying influenza. And this may not sound like a a monumental thing, but it is incredibly monumental. Yeah, and Uh, and that's hilarious, too, that that his name is Fleming. (laughs) Yes, spelled differently, but yes. Yeah. That was like the in my in not my town, but the next one over the uh, the chief of the fire the fire department chief his his name was Arson, which is amazing. Nice. Yeah. So anyway, nice, penicillin. Nice. Yeah, I can't have it. Yeah, I can't take it either. I I was given it the, for the last time when uh, I had some wisdom teeth taken out in advance of that because they had become infected. Yep. And uh, while I was taking it, I started developing hives, like right as I was getting to the end of the penicillin dosage, and when I went in to have my teeth extracted. They said, oh, do you need more penicillin? I'm like, oh, you know, funny thing is <laughs> I started getting hives like right at the end and they would sort of come up and she says, you got hives? You can't take penicillin. I could kill you. And I was like, oh, good. That's good to know. So, yeah, no more penicillin for me. Uh, my, uh, I was like 19 years old and I had a lymph node swell up in my throat. So I go to the doctor and they're like, are you allergic to penicillin? And I was like, is that the stuff you keep in the refrigerator? They're like, well, not anymore, but yes. And I was like, okay, well, I used to take it as a kid, so I guess I'm not allergic. Well, guess who developed an allergic reaction after he saw Madonna on MTV? 
<laughs> yeah, so this is going to be a, a, a delicate subject. It's not my favorite subject to talk about. Penicillin kills bacteria. Yeah, it's an antibiotic. Right. So. In your lower intestine, you have all sorts of good bacteria uh, yep. that basically... Um, Collateral damage, Bill. Yep. The term you're looking for is collateral damage. Well, well what, what, the, what that bacteria's job is, is to basically, well, I'm not going to mince words, it keeps your shit together. And um, penicillin, yep. penicillin is not... Uh, Selective in what it yeah, kills. Yeah. yeah, it just wipes it all out, good or bad. Yeah, oh, like yeah. you said, collateral damage. Collateral so, damage. So Carpet bomb the whole colon. So here's the thing. I stopped taking penicillin because I was in the bathroom like a good 10, 20 times a day. I never finished my dose. And then that carried on for about a year and a half. And I didn't, I was stupid. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to go back to the doctor because they. I felt like they tried to kill me the last time. Right. So, yeah, I had a very delicate stomach for about a year and a half. I was afraid to eat. I would walk around with Pepto-Bismol in my pocket for like a year and a half, dude, right? I actually dropped down to, I weighed 120 pounds at one point. 120 pounds? Yeah, at 5'10", 120 pounds, dude. I was gangly. Gangly, yep. sure. I'm Should this ever happen to anybody out there, don't wait a year and a half. Go to the health food store and get acidophilus yogurt pills, and that will put you right in a day and a half. Twibley does not endorse <laughs> medical treatments not yeah, provided yeah. by your doctor. Right. Uh, ask your doctor if acidophilus pills are right for yeah. you. Yeah, well, acidophilus is also in yogurt, so you can just eat some yep. yogurt too. Side effects include yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> Those are probiotics. Ah. So that helps with your uh, your digestion. It puts the pro in probiotics. That's right. Bill, what do we got for September 16th? September the 16th. I feel like I should go... Mm. No, no, because I I could not possibly do this any kind of justice because I have no rhythm. Unlike these three fine young gentlemen, uh, in 1979, the Sugar Hill Gang releases the first rap single known as Rapper's Delight. (laughs) And and what a fantastic song it is. That was the first time I'd ever seen a 12-inch single. Is the first time I'd also seen a 12-inch single where one song took up the entire side of an album. Oh, right, uh, yeah. So the long version of Rapper's Delight is like 15 and a half minutes, and it takes up one whole side, and then there's a radio edit on the other side with some other songs. This song I know very well because I had a cousin who, one, memorized the whole 15-minute version of it. Wow, that's ambitious. It used to get played incessantly at Hot Wheels when I would go skating as a kid. Yes. So you'd always look forward to that. Mm. And then it's like, yeah, Robert's Delight, 15 minutes of awesome. And Skate Like Mad to it was one of the, it was like one of the first songs that sort of came out of that sort of sideways weird disco mode. It was so different than disco, but it was still, right. it still charted on like the soul charts and stuff. And then it jumped over to the top, the top 100 and the top 40. What a fantastic song. Open the door for a million other rappers and... Like, every rapper that came after them did not look like them. Nope. Those guys looked like they were, like, in the cast of, like, Soul Train, like the dancers on Soul Train. They looked just like everybody else. It was great. It wasn't, 
was no personas and stuff. It yeah, was they... before the age of like um, Grandmaster Flash and Grandmaster Melly Mel and and the guys who wore capes and you know dressed like superheroes and and hewed more towards that like uh, George Clinton style. One of the guys I remember in like in the promo video had like a sweater vest. Yep. Yeah. They just yeah they look like sitcom dudes. It still gets played at the roller rinks that I go to. Really, it's fun too. You know. Like for the for the diving board into what became you know rap and hip hop for the diving board in it's fun and well, well, now that was seventy nine right yes seventy nine yeah I'm trying to think like I think maybe two years later or a year later is when um, Rapture from Blondie came out right it moved very fast it went from just like an obscure thing that happened in like you know the Bronx and and part in uh, some of the other suburbs in in uh, New York. You know, from like a really niche thing to just overnight, there was so much of it everywhere. What's funny too, like the weird dichotomy for that record is like 79 was the year that Donna Summer, her Bad Girls record won a Grammy. Mm-hmm. That was, that record is flawless. It's a, it's the best disco record probably ever made. And it was the last good disco record ever made too. That whole sort of genre of music just started to crumble. And out of that came the Sugar Hill Gang, like on the outside of all that excess and damage and like all of this like local small guy music from all of these localized neighborhoods started to become really popular and that whole industry just shifted and you could if you go back and listen to those two records at the same like one after the other you can it's like the difference between arena rock and punk rock the difference between listening to yes with rick wakeman and listening to the ramones it's that big of a dichotomy right i I remember there was a book of photography that i had called you know fy heroes uh it had you know all the punk rock stars but it also had the early hip-hop stars too uh because you know rap was like punk rock for urban neighborhoods basically there's a lot of parallel lines in there yep definitely all right let's uh let's move on to september the 17th all right, September the 17th. This is this is a fantastic, fun story about a really interesting guy. I'm surprised no one's made a movie about this dude yet. 1859, a guy named Joshua Abraham Norton, an English-born resident of San Francisco. After losing all of his money, trading in rice futures, and going bankrupt, declares himself the emperor of the United States of America. <laughs> now, normally, when people do this... No one cares. But people cared that Joshua Abraham Norton did this. He issued currency that San Francisco restaurants and stores would take. That's amazing. He made decrees that people listened to. He sent stuff to the, like, he suggested a League of Nations. This is in 1850, before there was a League of Nations. You know how I'm picturing this, right? I'm picturing this, like, Senator Palpatine. like, and then we will have peace. Was it like that, I hope? It's no, it's it's less like that. Imagine, let's imagine that you've taken your insane uncle to a fair where they do those old timey pictures, and they're like, <laughs> "We don't have anything, period." But here, put on this uh, band leader's jacket. Here's a chicken to put on your head, <laughs> and here's a sword. And I know the pants don't really fit, but put those on anyway. And that's what you get, and a handlebar mustache, and that droops down over his uh, over his jowls, and that's what you yeah. get. That's that, that's Joshua Abraham Norton. Yeah, that, and he was so so wacky. So, like, let me give you a quick... Okay. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was about to say, uh, it doesn't sound all that completely different than uh, our, our local, you know, up here in New England, abs- absurd joke politician of uh, Vermin Supreme. The guy yes. that walks around it, with the it, uh, the fishing boot yep, on his head. The, yeah. boot, the boot on his head, yes. So, that, like, we have a long history of, of candidates who run for office that are 
outside the norm. Right. This guy, again, this guy was out there and was able to sort of get back all that weird wealth that he had lost in the rice trading, trading rice in Peru, Chinese rice for Peruvian rice or something. There's no future and, in rice, kids. But like, he like sent a sent a letter to Congress abolishing Congress, and he had a my my favorite of his decrees is that it would caught you if you were warned and continued to refer to San Francisco as Frisco, <laughs> you were committed of a high misdemeanor and would be charged a twenty five dollar fine payable to the city tre- treasury, which in eighteen sixty dollars is expensive. Rip Taylor would have been put to death. Hello, Frisco. Funny, he's such an interesting. He's such an interesting character, and he would sign things as Norton One, Emperor of the United States, Grand Emperor of the United States, and Protector of Mexico. And he was way out there, but super, super interesting dude to spend some time reading about. Yeah, uh, San Francisco has a uh, long and sordid history of people running for public office. As, yes. as a prank and all that. I know you and I are both huge. Actually, I think it was you that turned me on to Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys. I mean, I was already a Dead Kennedys fan, but you're the one who turned me on to him as a... Uh, Spoken word yeah. artist and stuff. And he ran for mayor of San Francisco yeah. in 19... I'm going to think it was 78 or 79, somewhere around there. Yeah, it was... It was 19, 1978. Yeah. And he was running against Diane Feinstein, and she's still around. Yeah. She's still around. God love her. One of my favorite things in his platform, and I think he had borrowed it from somebody else, was that he was gonna like no more cars within the city limits. Yeah, he had he had a whole bunch of he had a whole bunch of things that were both serious and ridiculous. And and in that race, he he actually became the spoiler. He forced a runoff. Right. He forced a runoff election because he drew enough votes to so that neither neither candidate had a plurality. Yeah, he had to, he came in like fourth place a, or something like that. So. Yeah. Good for him. All right, so let's move on to September September eighteenth. Ooh, we kind of got a we got a, got a double whammy here today. Get double whammy, double right. header. So wait, I'll let you start because yours is actually earlier. Go ahead. All right, nineteen seventy eight. All four Kiss members released their solo albums, and as I'm sure it's been talked about on this show before, they did it because Ace Frehley and Peter Chris wanted to like go their own way, and Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley were like, "Hey, look, we all want to do something separate. <laughs> Let's all do something separate yeah, together." Uh, actually, it wasn't them that suggested it; was their manager. Uh, yeah, it was oh, their manager okay. at the time. I think his name was Bill Coin. You know, Casablanca Records were. They had basically, they had Kiss, Donna Summer, and the Village People. That was like who they had on their label. And Kiss was their biggest moneymaker at that time. I mean, hand over fist. And they were disintegrating. That was like the, yeah, the manager's idea. Like, why doesn't everybody do a solo album? And, you know, Peter Chris, you know, he had had the the hit single with Beth a couple of years earlier. So he thought he was going to be the breakout star. His album did not sell even close to as much as the other ones did. And not like the other ones sold all that well. The, the the four solo albums, it was monumental. It was like first time anybody has done it before or since. No band has ever done that. But it also kind of flopped because they were expecting to sell like 2 million copies of each one. I think a couple of them went platinum. A couple of them sold a million, if that. I don't. Th- Maybe they didn't even go platinum. But whatever happened, it flopped hard. There was there was a lot of recalls. Like a lot of uh, a lot of them got sent back. You still find them for in the like. I'm not even kidding, and I'm not saying this to be like a mean guy, but you still find them in used record stores in like the 25 yeah. cent bin because yeah. they're out there. I mean, they're still used, but you know, people bought them and were like, this record kind of isn't that good. 
you know, I was a big Kiss fan and I had a lot of Kiss records and I, I bought a record player and one of the records that I, you know, all of them like, because, you know, they're old records and, you know, I was a kid that didn't play very well then. Uh, but I put on the Peter Chris solo album and it played beautifully because we never listened to it. Right. So going into mine, sticking with the Kiss theme, on the same day in history, uh, just five years later, uh, 1983 on MTV, Kiss appears with no makeup on for the first time. I remember, and my first thought was like, my God, what will it be? And then it was, oh, they just look like regular yeah, dudes. But, okay, that's kind of what the they look thing like. was like, at that point, Kiss had gone through some serious lineup changes. You know, Paul Stanley, all he ever had was a star in his eye. You could, you could tell what that dude looked like in the first place, right? And yes. then Eric Carr, he had been around for a couple of years. Right. Records, right, but like I, I don't think he ever appeared on an album cover at that. Well, yeah, he was on Creatures of the Night, but you barely knew what the guy looked yep. like in the first place. And then Vinnie Vincent, right. he had t- he had taken Ace Frehley's place like the year before. He didn't appear on any album right. covers. Didn't he just have the V face? Like was or was that the or was that Eric Carr who had like the black under his nose that went up over his eyes? That was Eric Carr. Yeah, he was okay, he was Eric supposed Carr. to be a fox. Oh, yeah, that makes way more sense then. Right. Uh, than it being a V for Vinnie Vincent. like Yeah, V, uh, Vinnie Vincent, uh, he had an onk. He had like a, an Egyptian onk. Oh, onch that's, yeah, on yeah, his yeah, face. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, like, the only one that was like a surprise to what he actually looked like was Gene Simmons. Right. Uh, and then he sticks out his tongue. You're like, oh, there he is. That's a dude. It was a, a smart move for them because they were a laughing stocking. MTV, actually, with makeup on. Never wanted to touch them. Right. They didn't want Kiss anywhere near them with the makeup on. But once they yeah. took the makeup off, you know, they, they had some success on, on MTV. Yep, they did. Yeah, I remember, what, Animalize, right? That was the... Yep. They, yeah, they showed the concert uh, of Animalize on MTV. Yep. And then it was only, I think, 13 years later, 1996, is when they did the reunion. They put the makeup back on. They never they never took it back off. Because they look old, and the it keeps the keeps the wrinkles down. Yeah, it's funny when you look at uh, like Paul Stanley because Paul Stanley will still appear out of makeup. Yep. You look at him, and the eye that's had the star on it all these years is way more wrinkled than the other one. Yeah, and Gene Simmons looks like a loofah with dyed black hair <laughs> stapled to the top of it. Paul Stanley's the only one that appears without sunglasses now, too. Uh, all the other guys all wear uh, sunglasses. That makes sense. So yeah, Kiss, love them. Um, I, 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 I will die on that ship. I don't care. Yep. Yep. Oh, the, the one of the first bands that I that I ever like loved for music and style and everything else. I, and I've said before, the very first record I was given as a as a gift as a kid. I was six years old and I got Kiss Rock and Roll Over mm-hmm. and a record player to play it on. And I played that record until it fell apart. <laughs> all right. So uh, let's move on to the nineteenth. September 19th, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill claim that they saw a mysterious craft in the sky and hold it abducted on, them. Hold on. Their names are Betty and Barney? Yes, Betty and Barney Hill. Yes. Not Betty and Barney Rubble. That's correct. Those two were made for each other. All right, Kyle, they, go on. Their abduction is considered the first UFO abduction in American history. It's usually considered the first one that anyone ever took seriously. And it, it happened after a period of, of missing time and thorough screeching nightmares for poor Betty Hill, who went into therapy, went through this re- regression therapy, and recalled all of these details about space aliens from Zeta Reticuli and all kinds of other stuff. And then when they 
hypnotized Barney, he had the same recollections that Betty did. So there's this weird sort of corroboration of their two stories that they both had under hypnosis. Now, you could argue that they probably went home and said, I had this really weird experience and I, I saw all these guys from Zeta Reticuli while I was under hypnosis and Barney was like, wow, that's weird. And then under hypnosis, he recant, recounted what Betty had told him. But y- you can say whatever you want, but they stuck to their story forever. Right. And they never they never tried to like make anything out of it really. And I watch a lot of videos on YouTube about the satanic panic of the 80s because I think that is hilarious. There was one girl, and that's why it's so controversial, but there was one girl that under hypnosis claimed that this uh, couple like abducted her and tortured her and you know and it was all like a satanic ritual and stuff like that and that right. couple went to prison for like a lot of years and yeah, they yeah, never yep. did anything right so the, so the hypnotic that, regression is really hypnotic regression is is science with all the letters are very small yeah and indistinct and blurry one of the kind of the cool things about like Betty and Barney Hill like they're not a they're not like the average sort of. I imagine usually when I think of people who are being importing, being abducted by, by space aliens, are sort of banjo twangy. Yeah, farmer jeans. Super yeah. rural, you know. But Betty and Barney Hill weren't like that. Betty and Barney Hill, for the time together, they were together for a long time. They were married for a long time. They were both civil rights advocates and workers because they were an interracial couple, uh-huh. which in the 1960s was considerably rare, yeah. even up here in, in uh, tolerant New England. Now, where, yeah, where did you say they were from? They they lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's also not really UFO. Not UFO country, yeah, for sure. I mean, admittedly, they were up in the wilds of New Hampshire when they when they had their experience with missing time. It's not like if if it's a spaceship had shown up in Portsmouth. Portsmouth's a city of like thirty thousand people. Someone else would have been like, "Well, that's weird." <laughs> but you know, if you're up in Franconia Notch and it's two o'clock in the morning, probably less so. It's like you and some raccoons and a bunch of bears maybe, and that's probably all that's going to see it. They're really interesting, and I, I actually met Betty Hill. I bumped in, I physically bumped into her as she exited her house. Their house was right near where I worked in Portsmouth. I worked at a plaza right off of downtown, and we used to go for a walk every every day at lunchtime. One day, in, as part of our walk, I, I walked by this yellow two-decker with chickens in the yard, and I'm pointing out the chickens, and down the stairs walks... This woman who I recognized from somewhere, and I was like, oh my god, you're Betty Hill, aren't you? And she said, yes, I am. I said, oh, it's really nice to meet you. And I shook her hand, and I said, I like your chickens, and then I walked <laughs> away. And she must have, at that point, thought like, oh, crap, they're back, you know? But no, I, I like, it's really, a really neat and interesting story, irrespective of how sort of floofy the science is. They're, they're interesting people, and it's an interesting, interesting story. Are they still alive? They are not. Okay. Betty died in 2004. Uh, at 85, and oh, well. I'm not sure when Barney died, but he, he was born in 1922. Oh, all right. So yes. he's probably not still around. Yeah, no, he, 98 he died, if he was uh, around, yeah. Yeah, really interesting story. Really interesting people, too. My uh, my ex-girlfriend got to meet Elaine Warren, who was the um, the psychic investigator for like the Amityville Horror. Oh. Myself, personally, I am a huge skeptic, whereas my ex-girlfriend was not. And she was very excited to meet Elaine Warren. And this is long before we got together, but she would tell me about it. And I'm like, yeah, but that woman's crazy. <laughs> like, I watched one documentary. And she like, remember when you were a kid, like, your 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 aunt would have, like, a a cigarette, like, leather case that she would keep yes. her, her smokes in and stuff like that? Yep. Well, here's Lorraine Warren, or Elaine Warren, whatever. I forget if it's Elaine or Lorraine. Lorraine. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but she like opens it up and pulls it out, and she's got these like slivers of wood, and she's saying that it's uh, pieces from the cross that Jesus was crucified on. And I'm like, you know what? You have a chicken walking around in your kitchen. I'm calling shenanigans. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go um, out on a limb and say that if pieces of the cross that Jesus was crucified on actually existed, they'd be in the Vatican, not in some little you know house in Western Connecticut. All right, so here's here's a weird sideways pop culture question for you. Do you remember a movie called Going Bananas? I remember there being a movie called Going Bananas. All right, so Going Bananas had, um, it may be the first time he was ever in a movie, but Danny DeVito was in it, who played Laszlo, a character that didn't speak any any language. Was it called Going Bananas or Going Ape? Going, I thought it was Going Bananas. Maybe it is Going Ape. Mm-hmm. And Tony Danza was in it. Yes, that's the one I'm thinking of. There's a okay. there's a, an entire scene where the boom microphone is visible. Yes, yes, not the best movie, but in that movie, Tony Danza's vocation is selling pieces of the true cross that he just shaves off his desk <laughs> <laughs> and mails them out to people who send him five dollars. <laughs> All right, moving on to September the twentieth, September twentieth, nineteen eighty. Ozzy Osbourne, formerly of Black Sabbath, releases his first solo album, The Blizzard of Oz. I remember that record because my mom refused to buy it because of the cover. Oh, right, yeah. That was a, a game. Like crawling, crawling with the holding the cross. Right. She said, absolutely not. Going, yeah, going back to the satanic panic, because yep. you know, I went to Catholic school at that time, and they're like, look, he's about to smash the cross on the ground. It's like. Well, I mean, that's a bit of a reach, but okay. <laughs> I remember that record well. That record was super popular. Yep. Uh, I, re- I remember my one of my neighbors, Bobby, had it. The first, Either the first track is Crazy Train or the first track is I Don't Know and the second track is Crazy Train. But I just remember that album started out banging. Those two tracks, yeah, one after the other. Definitely yeah, I Don't yep. Know is a great song. A fan- fantastic record, and you know the virtuoso guitar work of uh, Randy Rhodes on it, right. and definitely you know, I mean, the years since that record was released, like you know that they both kind of talked a lot. Uh, Ozzy and his wife have talked a lot about how that record sort of came to be, and how Sharon was instrumental in helping pick the people that were in the band, and 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 how been so completely ev- evaporated on drugs that Black Sabbath couldn't deal with him anymore. And, and there was this this one little short opportunity where she sort of saw him and was like, I can make something of this, and was able to sort of do it and just spin him out. And he became this incredibly successful solo guy to the point where he's like the grandfather of like the Monsters of Rock tour. The, the fact you know that that I mean? man is alive is is yes. beyond me. My friend Bob told me this. It was another Bob, but my friend Bob, we were at Six Flags. You know the, the the amusement park. Well, I didn't think it was just a place with just six yeah, flags yeah, yeah. in front of it. And uh, and it, we both had to pee really bad. You know, he goes, "Man, I was getting ready to pull the Ozzy Osbourne move." I was like, "What's that?" He goes, "Lay, lay one on the Alamo." No, whenever you see Ozzy Osbourne on stage and he just grabs like a bucket of water oh, and pours it over his yeah, head, pours over his head. What he's doing is he's peeing. Yeah, and he pours the thing over his head so it doesn't look so obvious. That guy right. is an animal. <laughs> Sharon, I can't find this. There was an episode of his, the show that of his that I I will laugh at when I think about it for the my entire. I'll be ninety. We, we'll be doing this show when I'm ninety, Bill, and I'll be like, you remember that time? <laughs> and 
the Osbournes. And it's like the first season of the Osbournes and a genius visual joke. And my God, it describes fatherhood in the best way. They should just show it to people. Oh, so you want to be a dad, huh? (laughs) Here you go. And he's in the kitchen and he's like, he opens up one trash bin that's full. And it's like a pull-out trash bin under the counter. And he has something to throw away. And he pulls out the other trash bin under the counter. And that one is also full. And then he turns around and he goes to a trash bucket. And that one is full. And he's like... And then for five minutes, he like ties up these two trash bins and puts them out. And then he's trying to find the trash bags so that he can put them back into the things. And it's like 10 minutes of him like looking for and trying to find and then finally fighting to open the goddamn trash bags to put in the trash bag container. And it's so sad to watch that poor Ozzy Osbourne of Crazy Train. (laughs) And I don't know, is like, Sharon... Sharon and he's like try and no one is helping him and he's clearly befuddled by like trash bags it was so funny I remember seeing an interview with him one time and I busted out laughing yeah, my, my daughter says to me she's like daddy my I, I got some friends coming over today could you could you please try to watch your language when they're here and I said oh what the f- do you want me to say then <laughs> <laughs> All right, celebrity birthday, September the 14th. Who do you have? I'll, I'll give you a hint. You ready? Yep. Get a job. Well, there's only one member from Shanana that I can actually name, so it I must think be. There's probably only one member that's still alive. Uh, there must be Bowser. John Bowser Bowman of Shanana. Now, for audiences who are like, what the hell are you two idiots talking about? Shanana was this weird, like, 50s band they did 50s songs and doo-wop and stuff is like a 50s stage show a greaser stage show yeah the the and 1970s were, had like a weird 1950s 50s throwback yeah, yeah yeah definitely there's like this weird 20 year gap like everybody looks back 20 years yeah and i i started to notice it when i was in the 70s like the 50s is really cool everybody longs for that previous generation's stuff sure. like oh i want a convertible car with flames on it and a poodle skirt and i want to drink malts and bleh. And then in the 90s, it was like, I want disco and platform shoes and to look like an idiot and polyester. And so it's a long roundabout way of saying that Shanana is a product of that. Kind of a cool thing about Shanana is like they opened Woodstock. Yeah, they were the first. They did their goofy ass 1950s doo-wop friggin' stage show as the first act at Woodstock, this concert festival that defined the end of the 1960s. And they had a super popular TV show that was on on Sunday nights. Yeah, I was actually uh, just, while you were talking, I was actually looking up the wiki on the Shanana TV show. The members of Shanana, to look at them like now, like the their updated pictures and stuff like that, it's kind of a mixed bag because some of them are, are, have gone on to be like professionals. Like one guy was an entertainment lawyer. Another guy drove a cab on Martha's Vineyard for some years. And then some of the other guys, like you look at their pictures, like I said, they look very professional. And then some of the other ones just still rocking their their look from Shanana. Like they never evolved at all. All right. So moving on to September the 15th, 1939. I want to give you another hint. Why? It's my day. But I still want to give you a hint, even though you know who it is. I'll give everybody else in the audience a hint. Are you ready? Ding, 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 ding. Who might that You've be? You've got mail. Um... <laughs> Our good friend, Jim Kimsey, is his name, and he was uh, one of the founders of the original AOL. America Online. Which, yeah, which, oh, which kind of set yes. the foundation for how we uh, internet. The internet was around, but AOL was like the first kind of real social platform. Yes, like the it chat was a, what's stuff, co- yeah. what came to be called a walled garden. 
yeah. a walled garden where they had sponsored content and you could only see it if you were in the domain of America Online. And they were the first to build a lot of applications that leverage things like communication technology and email technology to make it super duper user friendly. I still have the AOL floppy disks on my Christmas tree uh-huh. every year because they used to send mail floppy disks to everybody on the well, planet. Floppies and or CDs? I have floppies and oh, CDs. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, AOL 2.0 must have been on the floppies, yeah. It was revolutionary in that it made computer networking and the internet something that everybody could access for an exorbitantly high amount of money, it would turn out. All right, so moving on to September the 16th. September 16th of 1956. A man named after one of my favorite characters in literature, David Copperfield, magician and illusionist extraordinaire. You know what my, uh, my favorite David Copperfield illusion is? No, no. What is it? When he made Claudia Schiffer think that he's good looking. No. (laughs) I actually used to really love the early David Copperfield uh, magic specials and stuff like that. See, I don't don't remember him as much as I remember Doug Henning. For some reason, Doug Henning is who I remember when I think of 70s magicians. David Copperfield always had, I thought, horrible hair. Yeah, he, he did. And he was always dressed well, where, where yeah. like Doug Henning looked like as soon as he was done with his magic trick, he would sell you weed. Yes. So. He might not wait that long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely true. But let's move on to the September 17th. 17th. September 17th, 1949. A genius amongst men and coyotes everywhere. Uh, September 17th, 1949 is the birthday of not only... Wild E. Coyote, super genius, but ah, also yes. the Roadrunner. They first debuted in the cartoon Fast and Furious. Do you do you have a do you have ah. a particular favorite gag from the that run of cartoons, Bill? Yes. <laughs> the coyote had a refrigerator strapped to his back with an automatic <laughs> ice cube maker that would shoot the ice cubes over him, and he was wearing skis, and he would ski down the hill on the ice cubes that the refrigerator was shooting out. Yes, I remember that. My favorite was when he bought something called the Acme Rock costume. And on the box, it said, have fun, be popular, be a rock. <laughs> and that that three-line comment still comes up almost every single day in my daily life. September 18, 1951. Speaking of rappers, the world-famous D.D. Ramone, <laughs> the bassist for the Ramones yes. and principal songwriter too, and later... Terrible rapper. Rap star extraordinaire. Yeah, rap star extraordinaire. He's funk, 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 funky. <laughs> I have a couple of DD's uh, solo albums. Uh, not, I mean, not just oh. the not just the DD King rap album, but like uh, mm-hmm. just you know Ramon style rock and roll. And then he was a really good songwriter. I mean, yeah, he, he was clearly quick witted, had a good good ear for rhyme, you know. But um, like oh, yeah. really interesting, fun guy. And his drift into into rap is really it's really. F- fun to go and like dig out those songs because they're terrible but you can see what he's kind of trying to get to with it and it's yeah it's charming it's It's like it's novelty records for the sake of insanity so all right next up is september the 19th 1928 the mayor of quahog rhode island adam west who who may or may not have been batman may or may not have been the (laughs) co-pilot in uh, robinson crusoe on mars as well but yeah adam west um uh, a great guy who's peaked early in his career, could never really get out of Batman, but 
never mm-hmm. really tried to either. Was happily doing the voice of Batman in the year before he died uh, for the for the, an, a couple of animated films for DC. I got to meet him maybe yeah. about six months before he passed. Yeah, I was doing the typical like autograph thing and all that. I had I had mentioned something about being a, a haunted house act, and he looks yeah. over at Burt Ward, you know, Robin. He goes, "Do you think you could scare him? Go scare, <laughs> go scare him." <laughs> Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and other TV shows. Well, I mean, think about it. Uh, celebrities were basically pushing and shoving each other out of their way just to have cameos on the show. All right, so wrapping it up on the 20th, who do you got? September 20th, 1941. Now, staying with our theme today. Uh, on the 17th, we did Wiley Coyote. And in 1941, of September 20th, 1941, Sylvester J. Pussycat Sr., or Sylvester <laughs> the Cat, a Warner Brothers cartoon character created by Frizz Freeling, first debuts in the cartoon Notes to You. I don't know if I have a particular favorite moment. You know what? Uh, when I was a kid, the Sylvester and Tweety cartoons, I was okay with. But there was a series of cartoons. I don't know how many they made. It was always with Sylvester, but there was a, uh, a Joey, a baby kangaroo with boxing gloves yes i always shut those off or i left yeah, the room really? i didn't like those did not like oh. them yeah th- those were those were pretty funny i like the ones where granny ended up having to like sort of beat tweety out of sylvester's mouth <laughs> those were always my my favorite like segments that funny stuff now we are moving on to the next segment which is Worst song ever. Who's our candidate for the worst song ever this week? Our candidate for the worst song ever for this week is the number one single for this week of 1969 is Sugar Sugar by the Archies. This song is still played on oldies radio. I still sing along with it when I hear it, the rare times that I do, uh, that I listen to oldies radio. And the song is interesting only really in that the band that recorded it, the Archies, they don't exist. They're the Archies from the Archies cartoon. Yeah, that always kind of confused um, me when I was a kid because, I mean, I remember they would, you know, the Archies cartoon was on in, in syndication. You know, they had songs and Sugar Sugar they would play all the time and, uh, and uh, you know, a couple of other ones. And then I remember hearing, like, well, I don't know, like my friend's older sister had a 45 of the Archies. And I was like, wait, that was a band that's not a cartoon? What the hell? Yes. Well, it's both. So the history of the Archies is pretty interesting. I, Bill and I are both humongous giant fans of the Monkees. The original creator of the Monkees is a guy named Don Kirshner. Don Kirshner was a rock promoter, producer, worked with a lot of songwriters, and came up with the idea for this sort of prefabricated band to specifically make a TV show and sell records, right? Pop records. Through his work with a couple of other people, built the Monkees. Did all the music with like guys from um, Tin Pan Alley, Goffin and King, etc. Hired a bunch of actors and slash musicians to play the characters, and they started the TV show and the Monkees. You can still find the Monkees on TV yes. now. Well, after like two records, members of the Monkees, some of which were actual musicians like Mike Nesmith and Peter Tork, wanted to put more of their own material on the albums, their own written material. Right. I remember watching a documentary, or always like a made-for-TV movie, and they were saying like that Mike Nesmith was like pissed that he was being, you know, just used as an actor and not as a musician. Right, and he wasn't even recording his own guitar, yeah. and and finally they got enough people to to Listen, yeah. to sort of yeah. side with them that Don Kirshner was like, well, screw you guys, I'm going home, and he immediately went out and created another band this time without any people in it <laughs> so he would have total control and the he did it by doing this this song with the archies and putting out the single sugar sugar 
Again, he went to Tim Pan Alley and bought the song from somebody, hired a bunch of studio guys. I don't know if it was the Wrecking Crew that did it. I think that's who did a lot of the music for the Monkees first and the Ventures. And put this song out and and it was out there. It was used on the Archie cartoon as part of the Archie cartoon. I think it might have been the theme song to the Archie cartoon now that I think about it. Yeah, probably, yeah. The cartoon was produced by a company called Filmation that he also, I think he also had some stake in, owned by Lou Skymer and Norm Prescott. And if you ever go back and watch the video, the cartoon video for Sugar Sugar, which you can watch on YouTube, link in show notes, and you go and watch later cartoons from Filmation, especially where there's a band component, and there's like three of them that are like that. Yeah, Josie and the Pussycats. And the Pussycats. Maybe there's only one that's like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, the Groovy Ghoulies as well, I think, had a band segment. And the Groovy Ghoulies, And yeah. Sabrina the Teenage yeah. Witch, right? If you go and watch those and yes. you watch the, the music components even though the song's different it's the same animation that they used i think in the archie the archie cartoon they just remapped different characters over it oh so, right yeah so there we go the, not not the first prefab single but the first all non-existent single this doesn't sound like it means anything but if you mm-hmm. listen to like gorillas this is where gorillas get the, started you know this is the, the yeah i was i was just about to make yeah. that connection with the gorillas yeah you know something i that's that's really interesting because i did not know any of i didn't know that the archies were don kirshner and and related to the monkeys yeah. and, and so you could just like you know you get the beatles and then you water that down to get the monkeys and even though i mean i love the monkeys you know the, the monkeys were kind of like a watered down version of the beatles and then you water that down even more and then you get the archies it's like god I'm glad this. I'm glad nothing el- like else happened. I guess. Although I guess you could make the argument that the Josie and the Pussycats was the watered down version of the Archies. Right. And, and, and it's well, it's sort of it sort of is and was. Like there's a whole like weird tiny subgenre of music that had a very short life. Bubblegum pop. Sugar Sugar yeah. is the best representation of that. Oh, there there will be more on yes, this I, segment sure. for sure. That song should be done by the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> the Sugar Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I think that's the best comment of the whole week right there. My God, how did you not do that? Why did you leave that up to me? I, I had to leave it to somebody. Oh, slowing over the plate. Oh. All right, that is going to bring this show to a wrap. All right. Uh, <laughs> see, see what I did? I see what you did yeah. there. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Right. See you guys next week. All right. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.